Hello and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Dave Gajadar to the show. Dave is an advisor across regulated industries, government, tourism, manufacturing, human and health services. Dave develops and implements business strategies, policy changes, sustainability practices, and generative growth with enabling technologies, efficiency, transparency, and accountability. Dave, how are you doing today? Hi, Raj. Good morning. Good afternoon. I'm doing pretty well. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, Dave. Dave, I'd like to kick things off with something interesting about you that most people wouldn't know. Well, that's that's, uh, pretty simple, actually. One of the things that I, my personal agenda, if you want to call it that, is about optimizing human prosperity, mitigating the human crisis that we have, hunger, poverty, homelessness. And that comes back down to all the things that we talk about from the front end, climate change, waste management, resource optimization, all these things tie back to people. And one of the hidden agendas that I have is always trying to look at the people side of everything that we do from a political perspective, environmental perspective, social perspective. And it's I've been doing it in the background quietly, you know, moving forward. One of the things that got me into this has been just that we see all the waste, all the people waste, if I want to call it that. And it sounds very crass, but it's ultimately kids are being neglected, seniors are being neglected, people, are, adults are being neglected, and we have to deal with it. And that's one of been one of my hidden agendas and passions, if you want to call it that. So I love that phrase, um, optimizing human prosperity. Let's dig into that for a moment. What led you to go down that road? Well, I've been uh, dealing with health and human services issues for the last 15 years. The more I've been involved in the state and provincial aspect of it and government levels, uh, federal, state, and provincial levels, what I realize is that the solution is not necessarily about throwing money at the problem, but understanding the behaviors across the communities and also, if I would lack of a better word, the supply chain in society, the societal supply chain, and how we integrate people, how we look at people. I don't know if you're aware of this, but there's a high percentage, one in seven household uh, food poor in North America. One in four kids go to school undernourished daily. These are things that matters to me. We also look at the other end of it of people on fixed incomes and vulnerable citizens, whether they're disabled or seniors on fixed income. We are treating them in such a way that we refuse to treat animals. And when I say that, and this sounds very harsh and and uh, bold, if you want to call it that, but we don't mm-hmm. want to see animals in cages. We don't want to see animals on farms. But yet it's okay to put people in institutions and put seniors in, in cubicles and care homes that are small and like-minded without interaction to society. Yes, we take them out and have outings for them. But what are we doing? Mm-hmm. On the other side of it, I look at the same thing with kids. We are changing the way we do we deal with kids and also how do we keep them engaged? It's not just an electronic world, but the ability to understand play and even make belief is no longer rewarded. 
So there's a bunch mm-hmm. of things that are changing that we need to look at differently again. You know, I, I, I really agree with you. And for those of you listeners that haven't picked up, Dave is located in Canada. That's why you mentioned provincial. But, you know, he touched on the fact about, fact about one in seven in North America. And that's something that's really close to my family, too. We do a lot of work here down in Texas for the um, North Texas Food Bank because we've learned over the last few years that poverty or, like you said, uh, food scarcity or uh, food poor, there are people in our neighborhood that are quote unquote food poor. And my wife is out actually today putting together what they call love packs for the upcoming Christmas break. These are children that they don't get meals at home and, you know, they get the breakfast in school, supplemented breakfast or lunches, but when they're at home, they don't get meals. So I I, I totally understand what you're saying there. Yeah. One of the things that really bothers me, if you want to, you know, if you've want to be blunt about it is the fact that it's great from a societal perspective we look at things around the holidays or around the significant days of the year but what about what happens every day to these people they are flying under the radar mm-hmm. taxation model tax and spend model is not working social services programs the percentage of benefits realized for every dollar spent is very low in north america canada united states I would go out on a limb to venture to say, on my, based on my research and my knowledge, for every dollar spent on health and human services, the realized benefit to citizens is under 30%. Wow. And, now, and why do you think that is? Well, that's because of the administrative around it and also the, the delivery model. It's not efficient. It's not effective. It's, there's lack of accountabilities at every level. We need to start looking at things differently and stop throwing money at the problem. When you look at the bureaucracy level in health and human services across the board and the, number, and the provider network around it, try to navigate that by state by state or province by province and you realize the quagmire you get into. The average mm-hmm. citizen cannot navigate all the services and programs that's available to them efficiently and mm-hmm. effectively based on, based on need. And, you know, speaking of the waste, let's pivot slightly. Yeah to your current endeavor, Zero Waste. Tell me more about that, please. Well, the Zero Waste is all part of the whole societal network. When I look at Zero Waste, Zero Waste is an end state. What we mean by that, and we move back to, is optimizing resources across the supply chain. Let's take mm-hmm. water as an example. Water is one of those precious commodities we all need for life. Every living thing on Earth needs water for life. Mm-hmm. Yet, as a society, we use water once. We collect it and we use it once. That's not efficient use of water. I also hear from people talking about different states of water. As my mind, in my view, there's only one type of water. It's water. How we use water, we have black water, gray water, industrial water. We could treat and reuse that water without taking water out of the, of the natural system and mm-hmm. reuse it multiple times. We don't do that. Same as we... we we go back to other natural resources and we apply the same model. Why can't we optimize those resources and use them many times? Recycling is not the answer. Recycling is a stopgap to get us there. How do we manage excess material and end-of-life material and put it back into the supply chain as feedstock? That's the question Mm -hmm. we need to answer. So with your organization, Zero Waste, I know you advise organizations and companies. What kind of consulting or advice do you give them when you look at their supply chains? Well, it's more on the advisory side of it. And I don't 
don't really like to use the term consulting. It's a, it's a partnership. And the reason I say it's a partnership is when you look at the uh, supply chain, mm-hmm. one of the things that we look at and when we start looking at organizations is working with their decision makers and their people to understand what type of material is determined excess material at every step of the way in the operations, in their operations. Mm-hmm. That excess materials, if we find when we look at it, we could find ways of optimizing it, reusing it, repurposing it, or sharing it with other industry u- users who could benefit from it instead of putting it into waste. We start to we we need to look at th- excess material rather than waste. One of the questions I usually ask organizations when I go in to meet with them is, do you have a waste management plan? Mm-hmm. And 95% of them says yes. And my response to that is why? Why are we <laughs> planning for waste? <laughs> I, I like that. Okay. Didn't see so, that coming. I like yeah. that. So we need to start looking at it differently. And the idea behind it is to change the paradigm. Will we get there tomorrow? Maybe not. But we need that to start having it. those conversations. That is a paradigm shift. Have you met or have you come across any companies that do have a plan? That's the other side of the paradigm? Not yet. However, there's a lot of companies understanding and recognizing that they have to do things differently. The question is where to start. And a lot of companies are looking at technologies to give them that kickstart. However, mm-hmm. technologies will only do as much as the people tells it to do, tell it to do. Mm-hmm. So we need to have people understand what it is we're trying to achieve. And let's forget about the outcomes and look at the active participation across the supply chain. For mm-hmm. now, the outcomes will take care of itself if we do the right things. So do you have a use case of a company or organization? You'd have to mention the name where you've helped them change their paradigm and reduce their waste in their entire supply chain or even part of their processing or manufacturing? Well, it's not, uh, going back to that, we have about, I I can give you about 15 examples without naming companies uh, across different verticals, oil and gas, energy. Let me just go back to the second. So, you know, we we talk about mining, energy, oil and gas, manufacturing, Mm -hmm. trucking. All these organizations have similar issues. One of the things that we have to look at is, regardless of the industry, most regulated industry also have the same clients. As mm-hmm. an example, as an, and, and I'll come back to answer your question in a minute. As an example, you take energy, agriculture, mm-hmm. mining, trucking, logistics, manufacturing. They all depend on each other, and they all serve the same clients, which is the consumer like you and I. Because we all consume energy. We all consume manufactured products. We all need trucking. So when we start looking at the end user and who we uh, – we're all serving the same client. Your model is not a whole lot different. So when you go back into these industries, as, as an example, we start looking at optimizing resources. The question that I have is, the term I use is ROI, which is not return on investment, but is resource optimization in situ, meaning how can we optimize resources at the first point of every time it's touched at that original point mm-hmm. without waste? And if we have excess material, then what is the channel for reuse, repurpose, or recapture. So Reuse, repurpose, recapture, okay. Yeah. One of the things around those, uh, the reason why I ask those questions is very simple, is that we need to start monetizing our excess material and putting a value on it. 
earlier on in the state rather than wait until it becomes waste and then pay to dispose of it. Right. So it's, again, changing the behavior. So to, to, tell, to go back to your question, we have an example. We have, we're working with a few, quite a number of companies right now as an ongoing process, and we provide the oversight and advisory services, not on a day-to-day basis, but on, a, on an as-needed basis to make sure that the system is being enhanced and modified as we go along, as we learn. Because it's ultimately, it's about people's changing their own way of thinking and behavior. And uh, it's a process. It's an ongoing process. It's a new way of thinking, and it's not an end state. If we look at it as an end state, I think we will fail over time. It has to be ongoing and part of the overall process that it's what we know today, except the fact that we could be wrong tomorrow, that sort of attitude. You know, I, I love the idea, and as you were talking about change, I was thinking about change management, and but just the idea of every individual along the entire supply chain participating, considering before they, quote-unquote, throw something away to waste and have to pay to have it taken away, what else can we do this do with this? And, you know, how can we not waste it but reuse it? I, I think that, the, again, going back to your paradigm shift, I think that's a fantastic paradigm shift. That That's really, really powerful there. One of the examples I use is and I had the opportunity of uh, participating in some development programs out at Boeing over the years. One of the questions I used when I walk into organizations, the first thing I ask is that if everyone in this organization was building an aircraft, would they put their family and kids on the first test flight? Obvious answer, no. Right. And then I ask why? Mm-hmm. So... What I, the purpose behind that is to show them the order of magnitude of interdependencies on each other to re- achieve the outcome and the desired experiences they want. Mm-hmm. People forget that. And we tend to become tunnel vision in, oh, this is my job and the other piece is not my job and I don't really care about that. That's nothing to do with me. But we all have to understand to make a circular economy and an ecosystem work, we have mm-hmm. to understand the interdependencies across the board. And we forget that. And that's the first step in resource optimization is reestablishing the value of interdependencies. You know, that that's, I think, as I'm thinking through what you're saying, from the onboarding process of the employee through the horizontal messaging, the vertical messaging, the messaging from the C-level down through the employees, I think the messaging has to come from all different angles in order to get the employee thinking in that direction because this is something as you mentioned earlier it's going to take a long time to unwind but if we can start implementing some of these processes now then you know hopefully time is on our side soon we still have the ability to do so right one of the things i would just extend your comment on is you know we we tend to make things abstract by making them process we're referring to them as processes or technologies or or messaging one of the things that i tried to do is to have people see themselves as part of the experience. What experience do you want to have for you and your coworker and the people you depend on? If you are receiving, as if you would take a simplified approach and say you're receiving a product in the production line and you're responsible for the next fee- phase after you added your value piece mm-hmm. and the information on the pieces coming to you was subpar, mm-hmm. how do you 
work with your collaborators upstream and downstream to make sure that we mitigate the, these issues. Simple language. It's not about a process or anything else. Let's find out what the action items are that needs to be done based on your dependencies and vice versa all the way down the chain. It's a simple, simple exercise to, that I start with and have them staying away from the abstract pieces of a process is abstract to a lot of people on, on the front line or in operations. But those are the people with the knowledge and value on how to fix things. It's not the key decision makers sitting up in the C-suite. They understand operation. They understand the business. They understand the accountabilities. But the people with the ideas to make things more effective and who has the solutions is usually within the organization. And I try to get that understanding. So I know you have a, an annual zero waste um, event. What are some of the questions that you get from organizations that want to participate in this kind of behavior? Well, there's there's two two major themes that comes out of it is where do we start at one and then there's the geopolitical barriers that we have to deal with. And these are some of the themes that we address at our conferences. We have a couple of conferences every year. And what we try to do is bring in the decision makers at all levels, the policymakers, the regulators, the investors, and the decision makers within the industry to help understand what it takes to to enact and move forward with enabling policies and legislation so that we could move towards a circular economy. A circular economy doesn't work unless all, all participants are actively working together to enhance that experience. Mm -hmm. To tell us it's one person's problem or it's a, you can't have a company working in a circular economy by itself. Circular in its nature is encompassing. Right. So who are the participants to enable that circularity within your community, within your industry, within your vertical, and within the political governance model you have to work with? There's security, there's compliance, there's environmental rules, there's social rules, there's economic rules. Who are changing and making sure those policies and regulations all align to drive that design-based circular economy? And this is where we try to bring those decision makers in to start those conversations to understand. And again, using the same approach, see themselves as part of the solution. So what are some of the challenges or the big questions or hurdles you see preventing companies from taking this kind of action? Well, there, there are two. One is uh, where to start, as I said earlier. And secondly, mm -hmm. it takes too long. Part of the whole process is we have to forget about the outcome and let's look at what's the actionable pieces that we can do today. What can we do in three, four, six, eight weeks or three three months or less is what I ask. Otherwise, mm -hmm. what happens is that we look at this big monstrosity and say, well, we can't change it overnight. But what can we do in every quarter? No different than we report financially every quarter. Mm -hmm. And we have all the actions that we need to do to support that financial reporting every quarter. Well, Let's look at what can be achieved to change towards a circular target and, and waste mitigation approach every quarter. And let's keep improving on that. And the, one of the things that we ask and we try to drive out is cross-industry collaboration to identify some of those barriers, some of the opportunities and the hurdles. And a lot of them, what we find is that when you start digging into it, it's not really that big a hurdle, but a lot of them is artificial barriers. And we can start removing those and let the real problems surface so then we can address them. And that's the ongoing 
evolution through to circular to a circular economy and waste mitigation. So in your time of doing this, have you seen an uptick in the number of companies that are inquiring regarding zero waste solutions? It's an it's a daily uh, uptick if you want to refer to it from that perspective. We we get inquiries 50, 60 inquiries a day. And how can we participate? How how you can help us? Where do we go? Where do we start? And you know, it's not an easy answer to say where you start because we all you also have to understand where you are. The, mm-hmm. the other side of it is that what is the culture we're dealing with? We need to deal with some human fundamental human behaviors. We go through an, an aspect of when you go into organizations, the biggest barrier to adoption or behavioral change. What do you think that is? I mean, let me ask you that question first, and I'll give you my, I'll give you the answer. If, what do you think the, the biggest barrier to behavioral change or or any type of change in an organization? So I'm going to say incentives. If I was to tell you, that's not even close. People want to like feel, to... yeah, people want to feel they belong and they want to feel that they have the authority. But also, the biggest problem is domain protection. We set up departments in organization. So what mm-hmm. we are artificially doing is creating silos and then you're telling them they have authority for this and they, they tend to work in that silo. And the other side mm-hmm. of it is that they forget the interdependencies. So if I was to picture, give you a picture in your in the theater of your mind to say, okay, you go to the prairies or where there's a lot of grain development and you drive by the railroad tracks, you see all these grain silos. Mm-hmm. Even those silos are connected at the top and the bottom, and we need to take those departments and find ways to connect them at the top and bottom so that they work together and understand the dependencies so that they don't operate in silos. That's the first step. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that we have to address is that although departments exist for a reason, most of the time they don't support the service delivery model. Okay. And then we need to start looking at those changes. The the other piece of it is how does those departments align to the supply chain and procurement process, the supply chain and the ordering process, the supply chain and the distribution process, the supply chain and the transmission process, the supply chain and the end of of life repurposing. What role do they play? So we have Mm -hmm. to start asking these questions because once they touch it, typically they don't care. And we need to start looking at it differently. So if you had a magic wand and you could assign a role or a title of an individual within these companies, what would that title or role be? I will not be doing that. I would not be tit- putting a role or a title because okay. as we see, once you have a role and a title, then it becomes that person's problem. Resource optimization, waste mitigation, and accountability across the supply chain is everyone's responsibility. It's not a role. It's not a title. It's a behavior. It's a way of thinking, and it's a way of operating. So what we're creating is another silo by putting in a title. Would they have authority over all departments and all jurisdictions to make things happen? Probably not. Would they be fighting barriers and resistance all the way along? Probably. Is that what we want? That's the behavior change we need so that everyone sees it. I guess I was talking from an accountability or from an oversight position, someone that would be responsible for it, in, similar to the vein of you know, a chief sustainability officer along those lines. 
someone that you know it was their job to ensure that everyone along the line was participating is kind of what I was thinking perhaps yeah and one of the things that I've seen and I've been doing a fair amount of uh, follow up on the success of these roles and some companies there they may make they're making headways and other companies not so much mm-hmm. one of the things that we need is the question I ask is why do we need to add another layer of governance and another layer of mm-hmm. another la- layer of red tape and barriers why can't we make that who we want, what we wanted to be and enhance that experience because 90% and 95% of the people who are working in these organizations have that experience at home. That's how they run their household. So why can't we bring that into the workplace? Why do we need someone else to tell us what we should be doing? You know, you make a good point. So moving on just a little bit, you know, you kind of mentioned in the beginning, optimizing human prosperity. Mm-hmm. I like to dig a little deeper in the vein of Simon Sinek, the why behind what you do, what led you down this path to be, you know, so passionate and committed to this purpose? Human suffering. Simple. I, it's difficult to operate in a world where you see people suffering on a daily basis. It's not, not because, you know, there isn't programs and services out there, but there's a there's a means that people are working hard. We, people are working two and three jobs just to just to keep a roof over their head and put food on the table. There's a, a a lot of homes in North America that are energy poor, that are food poor. A cost of energy is going up. A cost of food is going up. So when I start looking at these fundamental problems of health, wellness, food, hunger, poverty, homelessness, and then I see on the other hand groceries and, and uh, retailers throwing out tons of food because it's blemished. It's, the, it's not the right quality for sale. Mm-hmm. Makes me wonder. Do you look at the other side of it on clothing, the amount of clothing that's end of, that didn't sell that goes into the scrap bin or the shredded bin? Then I'm mm-hmm. going, and as people can't afford to buy these things. Then you start looking at the other side of the uh, construction waste that we throw in the landfill. 60% of landfill waste is coming from construction, and yet we can't repurpose that. So you start connecting the dots across the board and go, it's not a money issue. It's a repurposing issue. So and it's a way of ha- thinking. Yeah. Did you have like an eye-opening aha moment, or did this kind of build over time and then just kind of made you passionate about it? It, I think it it is uh, it has been building over time, and the more I see, the more I connect to it. The other side of it too is I've had the opportunity uh, to be involved in and see the aftermath of some major environmental disasters in northern Alberta with the Slave Lake fires, the floods in high level, the, f- the fires in California, the fire in Fort McMurray. And then you see what what it takes to coordinate and make things happen, and the impact of people not receiving services and the impact of some people receiving more than they than they need and mm-hmm. the equity around it so all these things start adding up over time mm-hmm. and you and you start putting put, putting the the pieces together and you ask well what is the solution like how do you get the more equitable solution where everyone can benefit from the resources that we have mm-hmm. it's not a black and white answer but however we need to find different ways of doing things. And this is what get me down this path. When you start looking at where does the waste occur, where does the excess material come from, and how do we cl- reuse end-of-life products and services, mm-hmm. and how we repurpose it, and how do we align it to those who can't afford it? 
And a lot of companies don't like to do that because they think it would erode margin and they want to protect their margin. And I get that. But at the same time, we're also paying a societal cost in higher taxation for the social programs to support these people. So which is the less of two evils? You know, you, you mentioned the uh, the food waste earlier, and I, I have a big problem with that too myself. I recently found out that, you know, I think 30 to 40% of all food or agriculture grown is, you know, directly thrown away. And there's this whole movement right now with ugly fruits and ugly vegetables, perhaps that don't, quote unquote, live up to supermarket standards, but there's other places that are, have outlets that are selling this, you know, produce. You know, there's, there are two aspects to that. Is one is a high percentage of food that's left on the farms, that are, mm-hmm. you know, tilled under because it's too expensive for them to remove it. And the other side of it is that when you start bringing that food into the supply chain, at every level, there's a lot of waste. There's a lot of waste at the packaging plants and the sorting plants, and then there's a lot of waste at the distribution pieces, and then at the grocery level. So when we start looking at that. And I asked myself, myself the question, why do we have hunger when we have so much waste of food? I mean, that's a great, it's a great, it's a great question. It's, and I, and I, I really hope that we eventually come to the bottom of that and solve that problem because there's, there's no reason for it. There's absolutely you know, no reason for it. And this is where my question comes to people. I said, we mo- worry more about climate change that we can influence, but yet we're not worrying about the practical things that we can influence. Hmm. So true. So you know, climate change will continue. I get that. We have an accountability for ourselves to mitigate waste, mitigate emissions, and optimize resources that would ultimately benefit climate change. But let's look at the real problems first. The real problems is people. Well, people cause, while, people behavior, people needs. Well, while we're looking at the real problems, what advice would you share with the audience? Well, I think it's based on our own habits, our needs, and also, you know, if we were to go back to the to the 30s and 40s, you know, the problems we have with waste and resource use is the same we had then as we have today. Secondly is, how much do we really need? We have a consumer-driven society, driven by marketing, that we tend to buy. And 90% of the stuff that we buy, we only use maybe 20%, get the 20% value of it. The question is, Mm -hmm. how much do we really need? The other side of it is, how do we help those around us and how do we look at things differently so that if we have excess, how we can repurpose that rather than throwing it out? Let's start with that and build that through the supply chain. Ask that question, ask that at work, ask that at home, ask that in the community, ask that at your churches, ask it at your social clubs. So what would be the specific question then? Let's let's share that advice. So as an example, what materials do you have that you can share? You know the old going back to the old community of mm-hmm. work that the farmers did? You know, if a farmer was sick, the, the neighbors will, will contribute and, and move forward and, and, and help each other? Well, mm-hmm. that's sharing economy we need to go back to. If I have a snowblower and I have to bl- clear snow, my neighbor doesn't have one, why can't I use it to help him? You know? If I have excess food and I know who in the community could benefit from it, why don't I provide it? That way of thinking. So if we start thinking of that sharing economy, no different than we've gone down the path with the sharing economy on Airbnb and Uber and everything else. Well, Mm -hmm. 
pretty soon people are saying, well, we're not going to need a whole lot of cars on the road. Well, why can't we take that concept into the food and hunger and shelter model? Why not? Well, Dave, I love that question and I love that advice to everyone out there. Share more, preserve more, and ask the question. What's your question, Dave, that you ask? Why is there waste? Why do you have a waste plan? Why do you have a waste plan? Yeah. And with that, Dave, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Is there anything else you'd like to share? Yeah, well, one of the things that we have to look at, it's an, and the only thing I would leave with a parting comment, is the fact that let's not look at the abstract of climate change and all these issues. Let's make it personal. Let's look at what matters most. If uh, people are wiped off the face of the earth today, the climate will continue. We need to protect ourselves from ourselves with, by changing our behaviors. I love that. Let's make it personal. Thank you so much, Dave. Okay. Thank you, Raj. It's been great.